0: What's up, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of the Powder and Loam podcast. I'm your host, Gil. In today's episode, I interview my good friend, Colin Child, about our recent ski and snowboard trip to Japan. We go over a whole bunch of travel advice and gear advice and our experience in Japan. So make sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using so you don't miss any episodes. Also, hit us up on Instagram at Powder and Loam. Or our website, www.powderandloam.com. So yeah, let's not waste any more time. Here's the podcast. So so yeah, Colin, why don't you give us a little bit of your of your skiing background? Oh man, I was not not your not your criminal background, obviously. Oh, I have yeah. so many backgrounds.
1: Um Skiing. I mean, how, how in depth do you want me to go here? Because I mean I gotta well, we'll uh, let's see. Why Why did you start? When did you start skiing? Let's start with that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I started skiing when I was probably about seven or eight years old. Uh, all my friends at the time, their dads would take them skiing. And me, I, I more background. I've got so many backgrounds. Like I just said, I, I'm an only child and... I, my dad's older and I remember going to my dad one day when I was young and being like, dad, I don't get to do anything. Like you literally get home from work and we just kind of sit here and do nothing. And one of my friends, his name's Scott, him and his dad just got back from skiing. And I was like, dad, why don't, why don't we go skiing? And you know, my dad went on this big long speech about how skiing's expensive and it's for, you know, select individuals and so on and so forth. And Anyways, I think my mom talked my dad into taking me skiing and I went and my dad said, I'll take you skiing, but the catch is you have to, like, I'm paying for lessons. There's like, you're not going to yeah. figure it out on your own. I'm going to get you a, a ski instructor. You're going to learn how to ski. If you're going to do it, do it right. If you're going to do it, do it right. Exactly. And, you know, I think we went every Saturday after that day for probably 10 years. With your dad. Yeah, I mean, my dad here and there. Probably by the time I turned about fourteen, when Dad started weaning off. Yeah, yeah, that's um, about. Yeah, it's around when I met you. Yeah, we started skiing together. Yeah, and so um, no, from seven, I mean, seven years of pretty much every Saturday, uh, going to to Beaver Mountains where I learned how to ski at Little Ski Resort in in extreme northern Utah. Um, I remember my dad when I was just before then. He'd promised me. He said, you know. I'll take you to Disneyland every four years. So we went once when I was like six or seven. And then when I turned 10 or 11, I can't remember how old I was. My dad said, so are we going to Disneyland this year? And I said, no, I, I want to go to a different ski resort besides Beaver Mountain. And I think my dad had this huge sigh of relief because he's like, oh, good. We can we can go somewhere else. <laughs> no no bacon-wrapped turkey legs or No, <laughs> No bacon-wrapped turkey legs, no corn dogs, no dull pineapple whip (laughs) uh and we ended up going to powder mountain and my dad was like sweet i got out of that for like 200 bucks and i remember going to powder mountain and just being like whoa there's there's a lot more to this skiing thing than just you
0: know the couple of slow chairs that we had up at beaver mountain and because at that time we were skiing on there were let's see three double chairlifts
1: three double chairlifts you know i think and the, a rope toe and a rope toe and i think the year after i started skiing they put in a triple and opened up new terrain this area called marges yeah yeah
0: that was around i think i've got a sticker it was around like 2000 uh 2005 ish yeah know. i think it was 05 yeah
1: i think you're right 05 06, around there yeah and so yeah that, that, that's where i started skiing um I had a lot of good friends who were good skiers. Um, you know, kind of that, I, I was a lone ranger skiing for a lot of my life. It's kind of that, because my, my dad has some health complications and he never really became a good skier. Yeah. But he also learned how to ski too. He hired the same ski instructor that taught me. His name was Ray Elliott. Um, Ray was a phenomenal skier. And really, I, I've actually recently been thinking, I want to write Ray a letter, just thanking him oh, yeah. for, just giving me this, this ability to ski just cause it's, it's really shaped my life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's really defined who I am in a lot of ways. Um, it's influenced so many decisions in my life and anyways, uh, so Ray taught my dad, my dad probably learned how to ski when he was 50, 50 years old. Hm. I didn't know that. Um, and so anyways, uh, you know, Ray taught my dad and they became friends through that. And, um, Anyways, no, it was cool. And then, you know, I, I kind of skied on my own because my dad and I were on very different levels skiing from the get-go. And my dad would kind of stay on the lower stuff and I was off exploring, doing different things. Um, I would occasionally go with friends, but mainly from the time that I was seven till I was 14, I just skied by myself and I loved it. I'd put, you know, Giro came out with a helmet that you could put headphones in. Yeah, I remember yeah. getting that for Christmas and I just would put on my iPod Classic with- With your tune-ups. My tune-ups, that's exactly what they <laughs> were calling the tune-ups. And I think I had a Beach Boys CD that I downloaded to my iPod Classic, my no, my dad had. And I just remember listening to the Beach Boys, skiing, seven, <laughs> you know, 10-year-old Colin just cruising around. Um, it was a lot of fun. And- you know, and then fourteen kind of got involved with you and Scott, some of our other friends, and we started yeah. skiing as a group. And you know, it was fun being around different people, just because it it totally pushed the level of skiing that we were involved in. Yeah, we were yeah. going faster, we were going to different places, we were yeah. we, we were trying to get out of the normal ski spots as quickly yeah, as yeah. possible. Yeah, and. Um, yeah, I started skiing then. This is a long background in skiing. It's probably the world's longest intro into skiing. But um, I started working in a ski shop um, when I started college. I began seeing kind of this touring revolution begin. Yeah. You know, probably when I started skiing, there were some people I associated with and their dads were telemark skiers. Yeah, yeah. And that was kind of the only way to get into the backcountry for a long time was telemark skis, skins, And I watched this whole backcountry ski revolution. You started to get, uh, I think it was Fritchie, you know, had a frame binding that they were putting on skis that you could lock down the heel, Um, you know, and all of a sudden, all these brands began to develop. Pintech became a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, even mainstream brands, Marker came out with a, you know, touring binding in the Duke.
0: Because your, your first touring binding was a Duke or a Baron, wasn't it? It was a Duke. Yeah. It was a, the
1: first pair of touring skis I ever, touring skis I ever had, I guess I was in high school. I wasn't even in college. I was in high school. I had, I mounted up some lines Sir Francis Bacon, second generation with uh, Marker Duke. And I think it tipped the scale at like 25
0: pounds. <laughs> yeah. Um, pulled your boot off going up the lift sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. And I'm just like,
1: how, out the crap. Like, how, why, like, what's this all about? This is, this is dumb. I
0: did you even ever buy skins for those skis? No, never. No, no, <laughs> never had skins
1: for them. You know, originally the guy who sold me the skis, who's kind of now a more of a staple, I guess you could say in the snow sports industry, at least in, in
0: our part of the United States. And just a little background for everyone. We are from Cache Valley, Utah. So the the northernmost part of Utah on the Idaho on the Idaho border. So it's it's kind of closed off from Salt Lake and everywhere else. It's about an hour and a half drive, and we've got one now, I guess, two resorts, but uh, really just, just one. Yeah, really more like one <laughs> and like a, a great place to night ski, I guess. But um, but this guy Colin's talking about Tim is his name. Uh, he's he was a rep at the time for line skis. Now he reps for some other brands and stuff. But that's that's kind of where, where yeah, most of that yeah, started. Yeah, that's
1: where Tim was coming in. And, and anyways, Tim was trying to sell me a pair of EP Pros, which was 130 millimeters underfoot with the Duke on them. Yeah. And he's like, this is the touring ski. This is the future. This <laughs> is where everything's going. And I remember, you know, I was probably... 15 or 16 years old and I kind of countered him and said I don't know of anyone who's like oh boy get me on a 130 underfoot ski and let's go yeah, ski yeah. up this peak Um, but my, my first real pair of touring skis they were it was it probably wasn't much better but they were K2 Confucius's with that same duke it took the duke off the bake and put it on the Confucius yeah, yeah. and it had the K2 was making pre-cut skins for their skis at the time uh, they had tip and tail holes so you could just attach the skin right in it made it really easy yeah yeah yeah. and you know i think that was a great intro into kind of that touring world because then i found myself skiing in places that i had discovered kind of that side country back country of my home resort but all of a sudden i was going i can go off that ridge over there and i can come right back up to where i know i can get back into the resort. And so then I started experimenting with, well, maybe I just dip off over here, maybe just kind of look over there. And, you know, thankfully, I, I not to toot my own horn, but I feel like I've been blessed with some common sense. It was from a baby boomer generation father <laughs> that was super careful about everything that he did. Um, but kind of in hindsight, looking back, it was kind of the Wild West back there where you know this is a very common area a lot of people ski back there but um the this beaver mountain we grew up on there's there's a pretty extensive out of bounds area not not it's not huge but there's there's quite a few options of places to ski and definitely probably the best terrain on the whole mountain oh definitely yeah definitely and it's just interesting that like there was this mass there's this you know there's a fair amount of people that go back there but it's this really backcountry environment that there's a lot of stuff that could happen back there, and in theory, yeah, yeah, you know, uh we've talked about this before, but you know, in thirty years, there really hasn't been very many accidents back there,
0: or at least in my no my recollection injuries from yeah. from people doing stupid stuff, sure hitting rocks, whatever but but no avalanche, no real avalanches, sure. back there. So, anyways, I I, uh, I took a took
1: a break from skiing for a couple of years. I decided to to serve a mission for my church, came back home, and I just had this backcountry touring on the mind, and it was amazing getting back into it. Just seeing how much the technology had changed. Yeah, you know, and all of a sudden you have carbon fiber skis that actually ski well. Yeah, you have bindings that hold the boot in that have brakes, you know, you're not having a leash that's going to clock you in the nose
0: when you, you know, pop out of it. And not just that, but all of this equipment started to become more readily available. It was sure the big brands were making this stuff. It was coming, it was making its way into the, your your everyday mom and pop ski shop, shops. Right. You know, it wasn't just like you had to go to Salt Lake and go to Wasatch Touring to get no. a touring setup. You could walk into even REI or just your local shop and find something for touring
1: there. Totally. And so, yeah, exactly. Touring just became more mainstream. Stuff was easier. Everything was becoming a lot easier with backcountry skiing. Prices weren't easy for a college student, but I was working at a shop at the time, got everything at a pretty good deal and uh, got a real serious touring setup. in that first year that I was Touring, I mean, I probably put fifty thousand vertical feet in, in that season. I mean, it was just insane. I mean, it was it was three days a week. It was skiing after class, nights, it was finding people to go with. It was it, it was a lot of fun. I did a lot of exploring of my backyard and I realized that Little Logan, Utah in Cache Valley was this powder paradise, really. There's so much terrain that was available the second you put skins on your skis that, you know, I, I kind of had this envy of living in the Wasatch Front or living in, you know, Bozeman or, you know, another kind of skiing community that has close access to backcountry terrain. But I was it was dawning on me that, man, my, my hometown's probably about as good as it gets.
0: Um, well, and before that, we had all bought season passes to resorts on the Wasatch Front, like Alta, Snowbird, Brighton, Park City, all of these places that we thought that's the place we have to be.
1: Right. You know, I think the the ski resorts did such a great job of marketing to people, especially Park City did a great job marketing Snowbird, Alta, Cottonwood Canyon resorts, Ski Utah. And, You know, I remember ditching class going to Snowbird and it was a 20 inch day and I remember getting two laps in before it was just like chop. And not that I don't like some soft chop now and then, but I remember just thinking like, holy crap, it's a Tuesday. Like what is Salt Lake City doing on a Tuesday that there's thousands of people up here skiing? And what, how is this worth it? How is it worth missing work or school or whatever it is for a few good runs, especially at this time when I was beginning to realize that, man, I can, you know, I put in a lot more effort, but I'm getting higher quality runs just going off into the backcountry. And, you know, I, I I still love skiing snowboard now it's on a powder day. I mean, there's really no better place on earth, you know, to ski consistent powder that's close to a major city yeah in the united states where consistently you're gonna have 10 15 inch days a year at least you know kind of bare minimum sort of a thing um but no and and that was another thing too at beaver i was limited by the train and and i i thank my dad for taking me to alta when i was a kid um You know, because all of a sudden I found myself on stuff and I'm like, whoa, people ski this. And it's like, yeah, they do. And that's what really fueled that kind of backcountry obsession as well as, you know, I got to a point in my skiing where it didn't matter what it was as long as there wasn't, you know, a 30, 20 foot cliff in the middle of it. I felt pretty dang confident on it. Um, You know, even to the point where I was like, holy smokes, I could, this could get out of hand pretty quick. And anyways, that, that that's kind of the long and the short of my skiing background is I went from a non-skiing family. My dad took a chance on me. You know, I, I, I think there's probably 10 sports I started as a kid and never really took off with. Yeah. And my dad scratched his head going, oh, here we go again. Here's another 2,000 bucks on something that he'll never do. And I just took it and ran with it. And, you know, it's put me in a position today where, you know, I, I there's so many, I, I'm, I spend my time on Google Earth finding objectives to ski. Yeah. And I found myself skiing a lot of them. You know, I'm to the point now where even in the spring I'm getting on a e-mountain bike and riding with my skis on my back to get into chutes and coulars that are you know, several miles away from a road or I'm finding myself skiing, all sorts of stuff, checking off, uh, I've skied three of the 50 greatest descents in skiing. Um, And I I hope ski many, many more. Um, But yeah, anyways, uh, from kind of late bloomer in the skiing, you know, I I guess it's hard to say you're a late bloomer when you're seven or eight, but in my life, it was everybody had a four or five-year head start on me.
0: Yeah, it's like uh, because I I didn't move to Utah until I was five years old. And by that time, um, pretty much everyone that I know had been skiing for at least three years. Wasn't that and crazy? I didn't even know skiing existed until I was seven or eight years old. Right. You know, and all these people were, had been skiing since they were two. Right. Um. But, so yeah, I mean, Collins, Collins got a, a pretty extensive background in both touring and resort skiing. Um, and you're not much of a park guy. I was, no no and you know I, I tried to as a kid you know I felt like my friend
1: group our friend group was trying to gravitate into that scene and i remember it was my birthday I don't remember how old I was turning but i uh there was this rail in the park and I just said i'm doing it like it's my birthday this happy birthday to me this is gonna be great and I went and i hopped on it and i I was on it and then I just you know, as everybody does, this ski slid out from under me and I whacked my hip onto the rail. It was followed by my shoulder that was followed by my head. And I remember I just laid there for like a couple minutes and I just went, why? Why are people doing this? Like this, that was, that sucked. Like, what was that? And you know, I, it's funny because I've never really had a fear of going fast but I've always had a fear of just slamming and probably slamming going fast hurts way more than just biffing it on a jump or a rail or whatever it might be. Um, But no, no, never got, never got into park tried, you know, I gave it a good effort, but man, it just wasn't never really resonated with me.
0: I never found it fun. Yeah. Um, Way more of a, you'd rather cruise the, the chop or the, Give me a good groomer a little bit of, a yeah. little bit of moguls you're not a huge mogul guy no, I would say names, I love them but, but I'll do mogul laps over you'll park ride laps. moguls you'll ride the trees I mean pretty much the whole mountain but not not a huge park emphasis so and it's funny to watch how parks just faded
1: away really I mean maybe it's just because I'm not I don't see it but i I just don't see the youngsters in the park anymore I You know, it's, there's not, maybe it's because we're
0: not up there on Saturdays either. Yeah, that could be, I definitely could (laughs) have been skied Saturdays in in a while, I guess. But I mean, like Snowbird took out their park, Alta took out their park,
1: you know, a lot of ski areas, they went, they got it, you know, they, they were quick to build parks and then they were kind of quick to get out of them. And I, I don't know. I just don't feel like it's that same phase that it was with Tanner Hall and Simon Dumont and, you know, Colby West and some of those other guys
0: yeah that was a that was a big there were a lot of personalities there's a lot of ski personalities and and not to say there aren't anymore but it was also um you know there was a big film from Matchstick every year there's a big film from tgr and they're still still there still are right but it's it's not what it used to be because of social media and stuff but so let's let's move on to uh the main topic of the day which is japan um Colin and I uh, recently came back from two weeks in Japan. Um, We skied, what, seven, I think seven full days. Seven full days, Seven full days um, in Japan. And uh, so that's the main topic of this show, Uh, this episode, better said. Um, So let's start with why Japan? Like, what... What brought us to to say, we're going to Japan this year to go skiing? You know, I think Japan, for whatever reason,
1: is the perfect culmination of everything skiers are looking for. And they've done a really good job of just of marketing to every point. And it's like bottomless powder every day. From January to February, it's everything you'd ever want and more. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think in this age of social media, I'm sure there were ski movies that we watched from Matchstick or TGR, and there were Japan segments. You know, in fact, I remember there was like a Sage, Caterina, segment in a TGR movie, and they were skiing like those hillside blocks that hold – you know, hill sides in on the side of a road, the windbreaker. Yeah. The wind, yeah. Snow windbreaker, or, you know, they kind of, the snow piles up against them. So it doesn't slide onto the road or I don't know what the official terminology is from retain some kind of retaining wall system. And I remember he was skiing. They were all about 10 feet high and he was just pillow after pillow after pillow ripping down through them. And I'm sure that that was Japan. But it's interesting how, through social media, people have been able to more easily target where an area actually is. Yeah, it's not just like they see it in a Warren Miller film or TGR or Level One or Matchstick, whatever it is. It's like, oh, on your phone in a very intimate space, it's like, oh, it's Japan. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. So I don't know. I think Japan just represents everything that skiers want out of a skiing vacation
0: yeah i i totally agree um and like we've both been to um most yeah i wouldn't say all but we've been to all but maybe like three resorts in utah yeah probably yeah i mean it yeah um i mean and and various other places i've traveled to to canada and skied whistler a couple times and You've, have you Have you skied in Canada? Or did I've, you just I've go never, up there? I've never skied... Oh, yeah, yeah, I
1: have. I've skied Fernie. I've skied Fernie in, in British Columbia. Um, but I've skied in Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Utah. Yeah. You know, most of the the Intermountain West and Northwest, I've been yeah. in a lot of areas
0: in there. And uh, so, like... I mean, I I think this is the same reason for me. You know, I saw... I remember my first snowboard movies I ever saw were uh, the DC Mountain Lab. Yeah. And, yep. uh, and the Community Project. And both of those, I believe, had Japan segments in them, but totally flew right over my head. Like, you see Japan, you're like, oh, that's cool. And it was never a thought to go ski there. And I don't know why. Which is totally weird, yep. but it's like, uh, you know, the last... I'd say we've been trying to plan a Japan trip for, what, three, four years now? Probably, yeah. it's yeah, pretty accurate. And this time, it just finally worked out uh, that we were able to, to book it and go. And um, so, I mean, so in Japan, we went to the North Island, Hokkaido, and we skied um, mostly at the Niseko United resorts, which are Annapuri, um, Niseko Village, uh, Grand Hirafu, and Hanazono. Um, and it's, it's one pass. You can buy one pass and go between all four resorts. And it reminded me a lot of kind of skiing on a volcano. It didn't, that, those mountains didn't look like volcanoes. I'm sure they are. It's not a prominent yeah. cone, but it kind of felt like you were skiing on a volcano because everything kind of went up to one peak around wow. that peak. Um, and uh, yeah,
1: it felt like if anyone if anyone skied at Mount Bachelor, it felt like Mount Bachelor partioned up into partialed up into four different resorts essentially. yeah. yeah. Um, or Mount Hood, if Mount Hood had more coverage, but it was Meadows and Timberline were you know, connected. And there was a little bit more space in between them. That that's essentially what Naseco United felt like to me.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, um, and it was it was a totally different experience from. I've never skied in Europe. I have you? No, I haven't. No, yeah, no. but if you've skied in the United States, even at like a a small family run resort like Beaver Mountain or or Cherry Peak. Those lifts might be old lifts from Alta or various other resorts, but it didn't, nothing I think compares to when you get on that first lift in, in Japan, they, it's a totally different experience. The, the chairs felt old and the, we call them the pizza box. Some, some people in our group call them the one holers, but there are single person chair lifts. They don't do the whole six pack thing. And did did you have you seen videos and seen that there were the one person chairlifts before you got there?
1: No, you know the only one person chairlift I was aware of was I think it's Mad River Glen in Maine, and it's like a famous lift, and they've kept it one person. It's just a single occupant lift. Um, yeah, besides there, I hadn't hadn't seen anything anywhere else in the world seen platter toes, you know, I'd seen a bunch of different lifts, but I'd never really seen a single person chair.
0: So yeah, for anyone that goes there, it's a little, it's a little shocking. It's a little different. The lifts are more raw there than, than they are in the United States, at least anywhere in the West, I'd say I haven't skied the East, but
1: yeah, you know, and I, I think, uh, it was interesting, because I, I, in the in the West, it's there's a couple of different lift manufacturers. There's Doppelmayr, there's uh, there's PAMA, there's, those are the two that come to mind. I could try and fake the other names, but I'm not. And there's a very specific style in the United States. It's like round tubing, um, they're shaped a certain way. In Japan, it, it, it was funny that like you got the same result
0: yeah, but it's yeah.
1: just It's just a different interpretation. It's just yeah, built a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of like every country you go to, they just do things. It's all the same results. It's the same, you know, every country has a highway, but each country just does highways a little bit differently. Their yeah, signs are a little bit different a, a or their lines are a little bit different, colors on the signs or on the paint on the road. But yeah, in Japan, it was kind of like, okay, this is a ski lift, obviously, but- it's just a little bit. It's just different.
0: Yeah, yeah. As as the whole country is really. Yeah. But, um, and our first day there, uh, we I mean this year was everyone's been saying it's the worst winter Japan has had since they started keeping record, or it's the worst winter in ten years, and I mean we booked these tickets six months in advance. We booked a hotel or Airbnb six months in advance. And it's like, I'm not saying no, I'm, I'm still going, you know, and you just cross your fingers and hope, but we showed up and our first day, I mean, we couldn't even, the airplane couldn't land because it was so snowy.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. They're just like, and I, I'm sure that's a, that's, I think it's the second most air trafficked route in the world between Sapporo and, and Tokyo. But, um, yeah, like they were warning us like, hey, it's very possible that you get up there and you're coming right back to Tokyo because it's going to be snowed out. Yeah. And we were like, and I'm sure it happens every time it snows up there. It's just a little precautionary note they put up for everyone. But when we landed, I mean, it was, it was coming there, there was a
0: solid probably what, six to eight inches. Yeah. On the airport. Tarmac. Com- yeah. Pretty much in that airport's pretty much at sea level. I mean, it might be a couple hundred feet above sea level, but yeah. You you come in right off the ocean. Yeah. Um, and so, so we were able to, we spent about five, six days in Tokyo before we went up to, uh, Hokkaido and we shipped our bags using, um, what is it? Yamamata or, or black cat. The translation into English is black cats. Yeah. Yep. Um, And that costs us around 40, 45 bucks a person to to ship skis up there. And I would say if you're planning on hanging out in Tokyo before you go up there, I would definitely use that system. It's, you don't have to haul your bag on the train. You don't have to do anything. You just give it to them. You tell them what hotel you're staying in or, or to the airport even. And they'll ship your bag up there and it's, it's pretty reliable. I I had a totally fine experience with it.
1: I you know I think it's essential. You have to do that. I don't I don't think Tokyo really isn't a place that's set up for someone to have a six foot long bag walking around. No, no. Even if you had a private car transfer or a taxi or anything, I just there's no way you're gonna get your skis yeah, anywhere into Tokyo.
0: And you're gonna spend. I mean, we spent sixty bucks on a taxi, and it, that was, that was the two of us in a, in a Toyota decent size. Camry, yeah, you know, decent sized car. That yeah. wasn't even, if we would have gotten a minivan just so we could put our skis in there, it would have been ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. We probably, and that's one way. So we would have spent 150 bucks just to take our stuff in a taxi. Like, no way. I, just drop it off of the airport. Just ship it up there. As long as you have three, I would say three days. I'd give them three days. to get it up there
1: yeah you know spend three days in tokyo um get a place to stay whether it's at the resort in the seko or it's in sapporo find a good base to base out of up there ship them there it it's the best 45 50 you're ever going to spend on a japanese ski vacation
0: yeah and then um flights and then we hung out in tokyo for a few days and then we hopped on a flight from tokyo to sapporo and um that worked out pretty well. Japan has a uh I don't know if it's a government sponsored or if it's just an airline thing, but you can get tickets to fly domestically around Japan as a foreigner, right? I mean you yeah, book the tickets yeah, so yeah.
1: you know it's funny. I've been to I've been to more than 30 countries now and japan is really the only country that i've been to where it's like oh you're a foreigner let's make things cheaper for you yeah you know you go to latin america you go to europe you go to africa you go to you know oceania you get down there and it's like oh you're not a citizen oh that'll be the price plus twenty dollars yeah and japan's like no we're gonna give you a foreign fare So I I think flights, they have it broken down. I think there's flights from $60 to $100, but you can get any domestic fare in Japan between $60 and $100 fixed all year round. That price doesn't vary. So if you want to fly from Tokyo to Hokkaido, it was $100 flat fee, Yep. no tax, $100 even. There might've been a few surcharges or things there, but it was pretty much a hundred bucks even.
0: And that wasn't even, that wasn't on like, some cheap budget airline either. We oh, flew on, on Japan Airlines.
1: Japan Airlines, ANA as well. On the phone does the same. Yep. Thing we. I think we got two check bags. Yeah, we, we could, could have, have had two, two check, check bags. bags.
0: We got a carry on and your personal item, just like you're flying Delta or United. Well. Yeah. Yeah. So like, it was it was really awesome to have to have that available. And so if you're spending less than three days in Tokyo figure out how to get your bag. I mean, you can get your bag on the train. Um, You're going to get a lot of weird looks and hopefully you're not there during rush hour because then you're lucky to get yourself in the train sometimes. But, you know, just even handling our bags,
1: our roller bags, or I had a big kind of base camp duffel style. Yeah, I felt like I was at a huge disadvantage getting on a train with just luggage.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Let alone like a big long ski bag with Two pairs of skis in there i mean it would have been really difficult really inconvenient um you know and i'm i'm someone that i i'm pretty fearless when it comes to lugging my stuff around for work i have to carry a lot of baggage places and it baggage doesn't really scare me at all it doesn't doesn't bother me let's better put but man i could not imagine trying to get a ski bag no no, maybe getting from the airport into Tokyo is not a problem because it's like you could be the first one on the train. You can kind of find some That's space true. for it. But if you were leaving Tokyo, going out to the airport, yeah, oh, it would be.
0: No, it was because we went back down by the airport and rented some some e bikes and and cruised around the and city, cruised yeah. around the city. That was that was really cool. One of one of the best ways to to see the city. The other way, definitely being the go karts. But we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, if if you're just transferring through the Tokyo airport to get to Sapporo, then not a big deal. Yeah, don't worry you about. it.
1: Yeah, just check your. You make sure you check your bag. Take all the you way back to through customs, yeah. and
0: you just check it again. You know, but and so hopefully, if you're gonna stop in Tokyo, you're spending at least three days there because it's an unbelievable city.
1: Yeah, you know the, the interesting thing about Tokyo is
0: it's pretty
1: bland. I mean, compared to other cities in the world, it's. There's there's not bright colors. There's not like crazy attractions. There's not like a, a, a Statue of Liberty or a, a Golden Gate Bridge or, you know, a Coliseum per se, but there's just little kind of hidden gems everywhere. The real attraction to me about Tokyo is just how big it is and how organized it is. And just watching this machine of a town work. Uh, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't, you know, the, besides Tokyo Tower, Skytree, uh, some of the emperor's palaces around the city, some shrines and whatnot. Yeah. There really isn't like, oh, wow, there's that huge, you know, like in London, there's the Shard. It's like, there's a really cool skyscraper. Yeah. Tokyo, it's like, okay, it's a glass building.
0: And cool. it didn't feel like there was a very defining skyline there either. You know, like you can look at Seattle and you see the Space Needle and, you know, the Eiffel Tower defines Paris and Big Ben and whatever, you know, but Tokyo for being the largest city in the world and being as iconic as at least I feel it is. We, we went all the way out to the end of the Bay and we looked back and we're like, that's all the buildings are the same height. They're all white or gray or uh, at least the older ones. Some of the newer ones have gotten to more of a glass building, but it just wasn't, it, i guess it is it's kind of bland when you look at it zoomed out but then when you find those places like the different shrines and the you go see the cool places or shibuya crossings got some some color and lights and there are a lot of lights in certain areas sure, and stuff sure. but
1: no i think I in think tokyo they have a height restriction of 750 feet is yeah. the max that a, a, a skyscraper can be. To put that into perspective, Panama City has 10 buildings higher than Tokyo. Wow. Which is kind of interesting. Now, Panama City has a, has a really massive skyline, but Tokyo, you know, we think of Asia as being this place where everything's built up. People live in these super tall apartment buildings. Tokyo kind of, it, it's capped at 750 feet. A couple of things that I read just said that like it's a modesty thing. That they don't. The Japanese are very modest, and they don't want to show off building huge buildings. I'm sure a lot of it has to do with earthquakes, with yeah. Seismic experience, yeah, while we yeah. That there. was that was fun. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm sure some of it has to do with fire code, and I'm sure there's all sorts of reasons why yeah. they have a limit. But no, you'll you'll be very underwhelmed by the skyline of Tokyo but you'll be very overwhelmed of just how huge it is, how huge it is and just how much development there is and how there should be utter chaos, but it's all very controlled.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we our first night there, we went to meet a friend, uh, Connor, who's, who's over there for work for a year or two. Um, and we went to go get on the trains and it seemed like it seemed like absolute chaos that first day when we walked down into that subway station.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, any any new city you get to, you're just kind of like, okay, how does this work? And I feel like most cities have this pattern of, okay, there's a public transit system, you've got the bus, or they have some kind of subterranean train, or they have a light rail surface train system, and it's all very one-dimensional, and you can pretty much figure that out. But in Tokyo, it's like, okay, there's three levels to this. Yeah. There's this company that owns this line. There's this other company that owns this other line. The subway belongs to this company. The above ground trains belong to this company. And it really takes a good while to figure it out. And I'm sure we could have done reading. I'm sure there's some great articles about it.
0: Yeah, we didn't do a whole lot of preparing. (laughs) No, we didn't. for, For the trains, I guess. Right,
1: right. But, you know, it's just one of those things where you just kind of have to show up and you just have to budget, you know, the first day an hour to, you know, maybe 30 minutes to an hour of, of error time where it's like, okay, I've got to figure out how do I get the right ticket for things? How do I get to the right places? Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But really, once you figure it out, it's pretty simple. It's a well-oiled machine. It's a well-oiled
0: machine. There's, because we've all spent considerable amounts of time in latin america too and down there it's well where's that bus go well that one goes to the market well how do you know i don't know i just it stops here usually yeah that that colored bus is just always here well where's the bus stop oh it's just uh about a block down there you'll see a tree in 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 japan it's it's the train is there like everyone says it's there within Within thirty seconds, yeah, yep. easily, and it's you know everyone gets on, gets off, and moves to their transfers. And once you figure that out, it is an amazing system.
1: It is, you know, and I, I've just been in utter—I don't know what the right word is—not shock, but just amazement of how the Japanese have tackled the problem of public transportation. Now, obviously they have a huge scale of people to move, but man, like you want to talk about a system that just works. It, it works.
0: Yeah. And so, so back to, uh, back to getting to the ski resorts. Um, There are ski resorts on the mainland of Japan down towards like Nagano and uh, Hakuba. is, is, the the big one that we all know of um but once you fly up to to Sapporo you can the city really is nothing I would say not really worth checking out the city in my opinion no I mean I
1: was actually part of the reason why Taylor and I's trip was a little bit longer is I went out there for work to do some scouting for potential a a potential film project out there and one of the areas i was asked to go scout was sapporo and you know i was just writing up my report today about it and i was like you know it's just a big city and it all looks the exact same and it's just pretty bland and you know it it is a very functional city for people it's not built to entertain yeah. it's not built to have huge crowds of people come to it and just be in awe of how cool the city is you're not going to find a, a swanky cafe or a a vegan cat
0: restaurant or maybe they're there. I don't know. I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure that stuff is all there, but it, if you just came from Tokyo, especially Sapporo is not going to be really anything special. Um, we did get to see the snow festival. And I would definitely say that if you're flying into Sapporo, fly in in the morning or early afternoon if you're going during the snow festival and take a lap around it. I mean, it's probably, it's like what, maybe a a mile lap-ish?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's right about a mile. You know, I I'm not, personally, I'm not a big cultural event person, just personality type. I've never really gravitated towards these kinds of, you know, uh, in the Western United States, I guess you could say we have county fairs or, you know, summer markets or something like that. But you know, if you're, if you want to get a good look at Japanese culture in a very approachable way, and you want to have a wide variety of local food to sample, that's true. Go to the, go to the snow festival. I think it was really cool. It was worth a visit. Um, like I said, I'm not the kind of person that would usually seek out those kinds of things. It just so happens we were in the vicinity when it was going
0: on, and it was it was worth taking a quick lap, taking some pictures. The snow sculptures are no, are pretty amazing, yeah. Um, but I wouldn't say that you need to plan to spend two yeah. days there. I mean, literally, I think you could do it in an hour. Totally, like, definitely one thing you need to know about Hokkaido is the transportation is still amazing up there, but it is not like Tokyo. You are out in rural areas, suburban areas. So you definitely need to rent a car. Um, Yeah. I think,
1: I think it's probably one of the only places in the world that you could pull off relying on public transportation to get where you're actually going but, but like Taylor said, like uh, Hokkaido is a very rural area. It, it reminded me of, of kind of my home here in Utah. Uh, small, yeah, very similar. You know, there's, you go through a town occasionally. There's a lot of farmland. There's just kind of open roads. You don't see a lot, but there is still a, a bus network. There is still a, a train system out there and Honestly, it's a viable option, but if you can afford the car rental, if you can afford a Japan ski trip, you can afford the car. Yeah, get the
0: car. And I would say that unless you're staying at a at a ski in ski out resort, you're gonna need it because from from our Airbnb to the the resort, it was only five minutes. But no chance you you're not getting on a bus, you're not getting on a train to get there. You've got to drive there. So rent a car from the airport, throw your stuff in there. And then, you know, if the snow festival is going on, drive into Sapporo, take a lap, keep on, keep going on your way. But um, yeah, definitely rent a car if you're going down there. Um, And then once you're in the Niseko, uh, Hirafu area, I would say, I personally think it's worth it to find a place that's maybe ten minutes out of town, and you've got a rental car. Save the money from getting a place that's in the center of it all, because there are there is plenty of public parking. Yeah, it's it's maybe a five minute walk down the hill into town, but if you stayed outside of town and you're looking for a more Japanese experience i think that's where you're going to find it
1: definitely you know i think you know find find the cheapest accommodation you can Rent, spend the money on the car get the cheaper accommodation even if it's a 10 minute 20 minute drive to the resort i think it's worth it having your own transportation to go places rather than being in the the center of the action depends on the kind of traveler you are or and and more importantly the kind of skier you are maybe you're more of an après skier and aplevu and you know if that's the case if you're if you're planning on drinking a lot or you just like to you you be out late with your friends or you meet people uh, i think there's some value in staying in the center of the city but if you're if the business is skiing and you're there to ski uh I, I highly recommend just getting a car. It opens up so many more possibilities. It lets you get out other places. I think the the lodging that I saw around Naseco was very overpriced in the kind of more developed areas. Definitely. And I, I'd save the money, go stand in town a little bit further out, have the car, get an Airbnb. Uh that that's what I would do. Another thing too is like we primarily spent our time was it Grand Harafu Village is that were Harafu Village. Yeah, yep. Yeah. You know that was kind of the the main hub of restaurants and bars and things like that. Honestly, the whole time I was there, I didn't feel like I was in Japan.
0: No, it it definitely felt like you were in like Main Street on Park City, or or maybe. I wouldn't say Whistler village. I'd say definitely closer to like downtown park city, like yeah, or million Main Street dollar bar Jackson hole. Yeah. That, that whole area. Uh, yeah. Very similar to Jackson hole actually. Um, where things were a little spread out they weren't just on one road. I mean, they kind of were, I guess, but
1: yeah, I, you know, and that, that's the thing. That's uh, not, that's not my scene per se. It was cool that there was a, there was a good variety of restaurants. Um, you know, the food trucks, which I'm sure we'll talk about here a little bit more. But um, there was enough amenities there, but it honestly just felt like I
0: was not in Japan, which,
1: yeah. you know, maybe some people enjoy. Maybe some people don't want a Japanese experience.
0: It's not going to be as big of a culture shock, I guess. Yeah, being there, there would be zero but-
1: culture shock to being there. Yeah. Um, but that that being said, I you know even the stores were run by native English speakers. Yeah, yeah, and I, I don't know. It just kind of has that that tacky. If you go to like West Yellowstone in the summer, or yeah, it was
0: it was a very touristy vibe. You
1: yeah, it just didn't.
0: I came to Japan to be in Japan. I mean that's that's really I came to Japan to be in Japan and ride amazing powder, um, and. We did get the amazing powder, but in the Seko, the Hirafu area, you do not feel like you're in Japan. No. I mean,
1: it was even harder. It was even hard to find like Japanese restaurants.
0: Yeah. That was that was the weirdest thing to me. And there aren't some, some amazing uh, Japanese izakayas around there, which are like a Japanese, maybe a Japanese pub is kind of the best way to describe it. A little
1: bit more food than your average pub, but. Yeah, um, and yeah, yeah,
0: very very traditional, cool places. But it the the food offerings there are very very traditional, um, and personally, I think a bit overpriced. Oh, but, definitely. You know, and and that that's true
1: with any skiing destination you're going to go on or, or visit. The, the, everything's overpriced to the ski area. It's a very expensive sport. That's true. It draws in a very expensive crowd. It's Asia's biggest ski area, Saseko. We all know Asia is just you know well. <laughs> in, the, in the last decade, it's been growing a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, primarily China. But uh, I, I, I don't know. I just I, it didn't feel genuine at all.
0: No. No.
1: You know that that's the one thing I will say about Jackson Hole is you know maybe the cowboy thing's overdone a little bit, but it's like you you know, you're in a cowboy town.
0: Yeah. You feel, you don't feel like you're in. uh, I mean, you don't feel like you're in Los Angeles again, or you don't feel like you're in Las Vegas strip. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It is very defined that this is cowboy culture, Western bars, you know, um, and things like that. And there's very much Western style food there too.
1: Exactly. Um, And that's the thing is, I think, Niseko kind of has an identity crisis because I think you have you know a stop that we made just outside of Harafu Village was the the Gemtem stick factory or or showroom or I don't. Yeah, showroom. Showroom, 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 yeah, Yeah. not not factory, but the showroom. And you go in there and they've done a really good job of kind of painting a picture of Japanese snow surf culture. And you walk in there and you're kind of like, oh, this is what Japao's all about. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is why people come here. This is very much Japanese influenced. There's Japanese people that love powder as much as I do. And this is their expression of how they plan to enjoy it. Yeah. And you go into Harafu village or some of the other villages around Niseko and they're just in this total global identity crisis of should we just be this Western enclave You know, maybe there's a Japanese restaurant here or there, but it honestly just feels like a bland, generic, cookie-cutter ski town.
0: Yeah, I I would definitely agree with that. In fact, like you said, one of the best places to eat were some food trucks. Yeah. Right right there in Hirafu Village. Um, Great food. We had a great food from it. But... There's probably, would you say like maybe 10 food trucks and of all the food trucks, three of those I think were Indian curry, two were pizza <laughs> and a zero Thai, were Japanese. Thai food, a sandwich. Yeah,
1: exactly. And that, you know, I, I was just in New Zealand last week and there's a lot of Indian influence in New Zealand. There's a lot of Indian restaurants, a lot of Vietnamese, a lot of Thai A lot of asian influence and and new zealand doesn't really have a culinary identity per se you know they're famous for their lamb for their fish but japan very much has a cultural food identity of so many incredible dishes and i none of them are really represented in naseko
0: yeah i i think i definitely agree with that they're Compared to what we saw in Tokyo, it and that's it's, apples it's, to oranges.
1: Like I mean, it is, yeah. but
0: still, like you know, Tokyo is still it's a huge city, and obviously there's some Western influence. You see McDonald's around there, and there were Wendy's and stuff like that. But it it still felt Japanese. You know, it was it was Japanese. Yes. Yep. And modern Japanese, but Japanese at its core very much more than uh than it felt like in Niseko. Absolutely. You know, it's too bad that the the gemtem stick people
1: business owners couldn't have more influence on kind of the the town vibe around Niseko. Cuz I think that's an important part of skiing and in here in the west, I think there's a there's pl- there's towns that have done better jobs than others, but overall there's a very much a western culture feel in the West, you go to a ski resort in the West, and it's either mining or cowboy themed. There's very much of a, a a cultural element to it. You feel like you're living vicariously through somebody who's seeing this area for the first time. The Japanese ski vibe, at least in Niseko, was, "Hey, we're just all a bunch of you know Westerners from Australia or the it United States." He was very States Australian or Canada and. We're just kinda here and we're gonna bring what we like to the table and just kind of shut out anything else. Yeah. And I don't know who has control of the town. I don't know. Anyways, I the, the vibe was fake. Is, yeah. is all that. that yeah. that's that's my it was not authentic. Yeah,
0: yep. definitely agree. But um the the main reason I mean one of the biggest reasons that you will go to Japan is to or go skiing in Japan is to ride the, the famous Japow, you know? Um, yeah. yep. And it's especially being from Utah. It's, it's hard to say I'm going to go somewhere else to ride amazing, dry, cold smoke blower pow. Um, because like the license plate say, it is the best snow on earth in Utah. Um, that being said i think that the japanese snow is hands down the closest that i've ever come to utah yeah and it was it was everything that that we'd seen in movies it was everything that we could have hoped to have ridden i think definitely you
1: know i think sometimes you see unrealistic portrayals of skiing. In Canada or the Western United States, you know, everyone dreams of I'm going to go on that that trip to Big Sky or Jackson Hole, and I'm going to be skiing waist deep powder. And that probably happens a couple times a month. Odds are you're not your ski trip is not going to involve waist deep powder.
0: Yeah, I went to I went to Whistler twice, two years in a row. Once in January, once in uh, early March. And the time I went in January, it was nuking all December. It was supposed to be amazing. Got up there. um, It rained one day and was bulletproof ice. And the other day, it was so foggy that you couldn't see 10 feet in front of you. And then the second time when I went in March, I got one day of 12 inches. And it was like, well, this is... This is crap. It's really icy underneath, and you know it. It just wasn't. It wasn't what all of the movies lead you to believe that Whistler is. Now, Whistler's an amazing place, but you you roll into Japan, and we skied seven days. Like we said, the first day there was like what, maybe two inches, three inches. I mean, the very first day, it was like it was it was clear, and it was
1: like it was icy.
0: Yeah, it was it was pretty hard
1: packed. It was pretty hard packed. You know, I remember being like this feels like, you know, Timberline, Oregon after a really warm storm kind of yeah. like, oh, huh, okay.
0: But I don't think that for my first time there, I don't think I would have had any other way because it wasn't super deep snow. And so we were able to very easily traverse across things. We were it was clear so we could see where we were going. And we just explored the whole mountain that day we picked out okay where are gonna be the fun zones to ride when this storm does come in you know and i think that was that was perfect um if you're not if you're not going to pay to have a guide with you which i think for most people is probably very um very worthwhile it's a very tempting
1: option yes absolutely
0: um I think that with both of our backcountry experience and we've watched a whole lot of very in-depth videos that we had a pretty good idea of where the good zones were going to be. And we can read terrain and say, hey, that looks good. That looks like it's not going to roll out. And um, we, we definitely we found the goods, I'd say. Yeah. You know, I. It's hard.
1: You know, the weather is the weather and it is so hard to plan anything I, you know i work in the in the in the filming industry and you just you just don't know what the weather's going to do you can be in the driest place on earth i've been in the atacama desert and we we had rain you know what i mean like you just never know what the weather's going to do especially on a ski trip and i, I honestly say with pretty good confidence if you do decide to go on a skiing trip to japan as long as you give yourself seven to ten days, there's a really, really good chance that you're going to ski great snow.
0: Yeah, at least at least one of those days. At
1: least one of those days, and I don't think there's very many places where you could give that—not guarantee, but that 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 kind of you know reassurance that hey, you're you're going to ski Jepaw.
0: Yeah, and that first day was was a great exploring day and then for 5 days straight we got between 8 and 12 inches every single day. Yeah, you know, it,
1: it was it was crazy. I remember we were sitting in this bar just getting some gyoza or something and I just poked our friend Connor and I said, "Dude, it's it's nuking again." You know, we looked outside and it's just coming down. And I was like, what is this place? This place is incredible. And, you know, I, I've i never really been a big truster of the weather forecast, like I've been saying. And the weather forecast was really hard to read out there. You know, the, the Japanese version, the AccuWeather version, you know, weather underground, whatever your source of weather is. It was just really, as most coastal areas are. It was really hard to predict their forecast. Be like, okay, yeah, definitely, like, you know. So you really, there's really nothing. I, I have, no, I've yet to find a great Japao resource. Yeah,
0: even the snow reporting, at least for Niseko United, Then the snow reporting. You know, we're used to here in the states. Like Snowbird has a has a stick at the top, and they've got machines and sensors and all this stuff and they can tell you exactly how much snow they got overnight in the last 24 in the last 72 whatever from their website you can even google snowbird snow report and the snowbird report will come up first thing on google but to find out how much snow they got in a united it's just it's some dude who runs like a, a very early 2000s looking HTML website who goes out there and measured it, measures it himself. So because of that, you don't get a snow forecast or snow report until 10 after 8 and the lift starts spinning in 20 minutes.
1: Yeah, you know, and I, I think that's kind of what some of the magic of it is there's been some times in the United States that I've based trips off of the weather forecast and i've been disappointed and you know or oh man snowbird just got eight inches today oh well you know hard pass you know I've <laughs> you know anything less than a foot like eye roll but you know i the, the cool thing about japan was we were just kind of forced every day to just go out and like like taylor said we had five days straight of powder and we just kind of learned that if we just keep going out it's just going to keep being there yeah and you know sure there towards the end of our trip there were the, they they weren't getting snow consistently you know maybe an inch here you know yeah. a couple of things here or there but you just kind of had to go to know
0: yeah well and and with that you kind of knew it, it was japan is it's it's a well-oiled machine that Mother Nature runs up there. It's the craziest thing. It's, you know, you get up there in the morning and it's clear and the mornings are great. And then I'd say early, late morning, very early afternoon, it gets pretty cloudy and socked in for a sec. Then early to late afternoon, it kind of clears out. And then late afternoon, early evening, The snow starts to roll back in and you can tell pretty easy, like, hey, at 9 p.m., what's it look like outside? Is it nuking? Okay, it's going to be good. And every time that there was good snow, it was nuking at 9 p.m., 8, 9 p.m. But then those days that it didn't snow, you look out the window and be like, oh, hey, it's snowing. And then 30 minutes later, it wasn't.
1: Yeah, you know, and, I, and just put things into perspective, Niseko, I think it's like 10 miles from the ocean as the crow flies. You know, it's it's not. Yeah, it's definitely it, close because you could see it from the peak. All. Yeah, you can see it from the very top of Niseko. And, you know, it, it just gets ocean weather storm, you know, where you're fairly high, you know, latitude and you just get ocean weather storms and, you know, kind of touching back to what Taylor was talking about with the snow quality, you know, I I think Utah definitely has the greatest snow on earth. I think the intermountain West from Montana down to Utah just gets super dry snow. It's a desert. It's a desert that gets a lot of snow, high desert. And, you know, Japan, definitely the snow was heavier. You know, it it stuck to metal. It, It looks like the Northwest, you know, I'm sure there's days that Japan gets warmer storms or, you know, gets and more I think coastal that, weather.
0: I think that down south that happens a lot more than, than it up does north, up in yeah. Hokkaido.
1: Totally. But man, just this combination of ocean precipitation followed by, they claim it's cold Siberian winds that come down and kind of dry out the ocean storms. And it's just the perfect recipe for deep powder.
0: Yeah, and the the consistency felt very much like the Utah powder that we're used to seeing. But then, just because there's that humidity right down low, it does the weirdest thing where it'll kind of stick into these little blocks, and whenever you make a slash, it sprays snow so high and so far, and then it just lingers there. So, I mean multiple times. It was like the, the turn of your life and then absolute terror because you couldn't see anything. Yeah, that's a really good point. I didn't,
1: you know, I, I, I've had some times, you know, snow gets caught in my mouth or, you know, it's just blowing up over your head. And that's, you know, there's not a better feeling than that, but it was funny. You know, that, that might be a turn or three in a, in a series in Utah. But this was like every turn it's like you're getting disoriented in the in the in the cold smoke
0: yeah and in in trees in, there's in, a, a there's a lot of trees silver
1: birch trees <laughs> you know and I, I think I think too the the vegetation adds a lot to the snow
0: definitely the it, quality it it adds to the snow and it adds to the terrain, uh, I've been telling people, I think it's the funnest terrain I've ever ridden. It wasn't the steepest, gnarliest bowls and chutes that you get at Snowbird, Whistler, Big Sky, Jackson wherever. Bowl, you know. Wherever. It's, yeah. it's not that kind of skiing, but I've never skied anywhere that's like the super fun half-pipe, natural half-pipes that you're just surfing. uh with a mix of pillows off of trees, you never—I never really worried about hitting a rock. No, maybe maybe, a, maybe there, a there tree. were a couple
1: that would you know popped up. There were a couple land sharks here and there, but nothing like nothing like getting into a shoot at Alta where it's like you're on dry dirt for a minute, you know, crawling your way over to your line. It it the the train was very conducive to skiing.
0: Yeah, it was it was just a powder playground there were it was steep enough that you weren't I, I found myself holding back speed um, I'm personally on a winter stick round tail size 163 um, pretty big board very good in Utah at Beaver Mountain because we're a little bit lower angle our trees are you know big pine trees and stuff that you can get around um, and That board was too much float and too much speed for Japan because I was constantly trying to dump speed. And you, you took some K two pontoons with you and didn't even use them. Yeah, I didn't even touch the pontoons,
1: you know. And that I think that Japan in other years is a place where you can justify a pontoon. Um, You know, we talked. I talked to this Spaniard who had been working there for a while. And I think it was his third or fourth season he'd been there. And he he said that the season before, so the 2018-19 the season, he said it was 30 centimeters day after day after day. And I don't know how much of that is an exaggeration. We can go back in the snow history and take a look at it.
0: It was I think it was pretty close. It was amazing last year.
1: But you know, if you're getting, if you're getting 18 inches of snow every day, it's like, yeah, you can justify a 130 underfoot ski. Uh, the ski that I, the, I, the other ski that I brought was a Blizzard Wrestler 11, 114 underfoot. Uh, it was a one ninety one or one eighty nine. I can't remember exactly how long it is. I think one eighty eight. One eighty eight. Um, anyways, it that that ski is a hot knife through just chop resort. It is, in my opinion, the best Cottonwood ski. Um, Definitely wishing I would have had something with a shorter turning radius. Um, I do own some line pescados that would have been the perfect ski to have there. Something that's just surfy, turns on a dime. You know, and I think that's something too that people it's a whole different style of skiing. It's very close to Pacific Northwest tree skiing. It's just there isn't the space. You know, it's a very confined tree skiing. You know, yeah. you almost need that deep powder to be able to execute turns precisely. I remember when, you know, things were starting to get more packed out. It was like, oh, I don't have the same stopping power that I did in powder. I can't just Definitely. charge you can just through scrub speed. Yeah, I can't just like flick of the heel, you know, just make a perfect turn, slow way down, determine my next steps. It was tight quarters, tight skiing. Um, I would say shorter and fatter skis are going to do better in at least the terrain that we skied in a seco,
0: yeah, and I think that that, that really showed in uh, the design of the Japanese product too Oh absolutely um, yeah yep because uh we're both huge gearheads. Huge. Uh, we own more skis than any man probably should own in his <laughs> lifetime, but or and snowboards. I mostly snowboard, but uh, you you went into that that Gentemstick showroom, and it was like they're beautiful boards, and and even I know that for some people, skiers looking at snowboards, it's a hard thing, but it was it definitely showed in their design and even and even a a skier can pick up on that and be like i get it they they went shorter they went a little bit wider um a little bit more centered in their stance on those boards and that's why it's steep um you don't need the huge big long uh boards to to keep you floating on the low angle stuff it was it was steep enough but they were super quick and surfy and the side cut was, was perfect on those things to get around those trees and that terrain. And, and it really shows and it's cool to see that development. I wish there were more Japanese brands and we could see that development in more things. Um, but it's just cool to see them design stuff for the stuff that they ride. And uh, yeah, that was absolutely,
1: you know, I think, for whatever reason, I it was cool. This Gentem stick showroom really showcases what surf culture is all about. And whether it's on skis, whether it's on a snowboard, it's on a surfboard, behind a boat, um, you know, mountain biking can I, I feel like can be expressed through kind of a surfing feel in a lot of ways. But this whole idea of, of, Shredding deep powder, regardless of what instrument you use to accomplish that goal, is very uniting and you know i i I personally believe that Alta has better snow because it's skiers only I feel like it it skis easier than you know it's something that's tracked up with snowboard tracks for whatever reason and i, I we could talk about the physics of it or whatever but I, I think there's just something so unifying about this coming together to just ski deep powder. I I, I can't think it, man. If anyone could, if everyone could ski deep powder, it would be amazing. The conflicts we could resolve. Just if you could just know that you know what you're going to be able to to have that surf feeling again. Can't we all just get a longboard, right? Anyways, uh, you know I. I it it was cool to watch the culture of surf be expressed through so many different mediums and really the mountain is an ocean it's just a different
0: kind of water. Yeah. So, um, so I think it's, uh, it's probably about time we, uh, we wrap this up. We've gone through, through uh, pretty much everything I feel like. Um, Yeah. Yep. So, Before we end, I, I want to, I want to get, uh, what would be your, let's say top three or top five, um, top five thing, top three or five things that you took away from this trip or top three, five moments, you know?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, you know, one of which is I think so much of the this travel revolution that's going on across the world. We have more international travel than ever than ever before. I think the biggest thing about a ski trip is you just have to be patient and you have to be dynamic. That was probably my biggest takeaway is, you know, if one resort on Hokkaido is getting nuked, you need to be prepared to get over there. You know, if, if, if that's your goal, if your goal is to ski powder, you need to be, you need to have a flexible travel plan. Um, it can't just be like, oh, I'm going to go here for a day and move on to the next place for another day and go here for a day. You, you can't have a rudimentary schedule. It needs to be, I'm going to Hokkaido, I'm going to talk to the locals at a shop, or I'm going to figure out where my source of information is. Whether it's at the hostel, you're talking to people, at the you know at the ski resort, you need to find a a way to to be able to change your plans uh, to get to where the goods are going to be at.
0: Agreed, agreed.
1: Number two, I think the the number two takeaway is, you know, find someone who's been to Hokkaido or find a guide. You know, I, like like Taylor was saying, I, f- I felt like we were pretty confident in our way to read the terrain and and we had a great experience without a guide but if i were to go back i would take a touring setup i would i would look at investing a day or two into skiing the actual backcountry whether it's yote or another area on hokkaido number 3 i'd say don't be afraid to explore and that's probably more along the lines of number 1 but this is a powder paradise and this is it, it literally has all the ingredients to be the perfect ski vacation And thankfully it's not served up on a gold platter for you. It's kind of like you can go out and have your own adventure. There's a dozen ski resorts or more. There's so many places you can go so many different ways to experience it. So many different food options, places to go, things to do. Um, So I I would say go into it with a plan, but not like, oh, we have to be here on this day.
0: Yeah. And, uh, to to add to that, when you're on the mountain, um it's it's pretty incredible how many people are on the mountain, at least at Niseko United. We went to another little resort and there was no one. Yeah. But nope. at Niseko United, there's a ton of people and it's amazing how even until three PM you can still find amazing snow. Yeah. Yep. which doesn't happen in really any of the big resort areas. My fourth takeaway is don't change your
1: perspective of Japan as it's not an experts only destination. We saw skiers of every ability level from every nationality, every country, everything. You know, it was very much a ski destination for people. It wasn't just a bunch of, you know, powder junkies or people who love steep crazy snow or steep conditions Agree. it was everyone uh, my fifth takeaway is just get ready to get naked
0: yeah yeah that's that's actually very true uh to to add to that and give some context to that um the so in japan there's a lot of hot springs um and these hot springs that you can go bathe in are called onsens Um, and we went to an onsen and we'd done our research. We knew that, uh, these are usually done, uh, sans clothes. And so we were, we were all pretty prepared for that. Um, we, we did take swimming suits just in, in case, but, uh, no, the swimming suits were not allowed in the onsen. Yeah,
1: yeah, just you know, and I, I think an onsen is the perfect way to cap off a.
0: It was it was amazing. It relaxed the muscles. Day. It was it's you just go sit in a in a nice hot tub. Um, but we did see some Americans roll in as we were getting dressed, and they seemed pretty shell shocked that yeah. Uh, that they were going to have to get naked to get into, into these, (laughs) into into these hot tubs, um, which was kind of funny to watch,
1: you know? And I I think another thing just to add on to that is Japan is such a safe place to go. You know, you don't have to, there's places that I've traveled to and you kind of have to watch your behavior. You kind of have to be careful what, what rabbit hole you jump down. Uh, I spent some time in a Moroccan jail once, um, but in Japan, it's like, don't be afraid to just kind of hop into the culture, go to the restaurants, try and bond with people. They are, you know, they're a very welcoming culture. They don't always pay attention to you. They don't always, you know, are they're not, they don't call a lot of attention to themselves. But honestly, I felt welcome in every restaurant I went to, even you know Tokyo, Hokkaido, wherever we were, I felt like, you, as a as a Westerner, could participate in any Japanese cultural activity as long as you had some common sense and respect, and you could really enjoy it. You could see things for yourself. You could see things that are different. Uh, I never felt like I was doing something I wasn't supposed to. Like sometimes I felt in other places of like, oh, am I being maybe culturally sensitive here? Am I am I dressed for the occasion? Whatever it is, I I didn't feel any feelings of like, oh man, I'm, I'm doing a disservice to the Japanese culture right now. It's like, just go have fun, you know, try and just, just embrace it full on.
0: Yeah. Um, And then uh, I want to, I want to leave every podcast with, with the same question. Um, And that is, what are your We'll, we'll do a ski-themed one because we just talked about skis. What are your top three either favorite or most essential or whatever pieces of gear that... Um, and you'll be on the podcast more, so maybe we'll just keep this one to the Japan trip. What were your top three favorite or most essential pieces of gear that you took with you to Japan
1: Um, boot dryer. I think having a boot, you know, one thing that Japan gets really cold and it's really humid. And I've been in situations where your ski boots are, you know, damp from the day before. And I've actually had my socks freeze to my ski boots. They just get so cold. Um, you know, I wear tight, properly fitting ski boots. So my feet are usually just cold the entire day, but Um, it was nice to have a boot dryer and just get my boots dry every night. And I was getting into a warm pair of dry boots every
0: day. That was, that was essential. And those were, that was just a, a little like tiny, like they were, the two of them put together were no bigger than like, uh, than like, uh, a, a smartphone or anything. Like exactly, yeah. yeah. They, these were yep. little tiny boot dryers you can pack up really easy, fit in your hand, um, and they cost you like, what, 20 bucks on Amazon yeah, or I think they're 20
1: or 30 bucks. I, I wish they were more powerful. They did the job. They did exactly what I needed them to do. I wish they had higher... I wish there was like a heating element to them or a stronger fan, but they did what they needed to do. Uh, definitely, you know, the, the boot dryers... Two, I would say just uh, warm clothes. I was surprised how cold we were some of the days. Uh, Typically, I try and dress less, especially here, even though on a cold day, because it's like I'm doing really hard skiing, but it was amazing how exposed it was to the wind, to the cold. I don't know if we had unseasonably cold temperatures. I bet it was pretty standard Japan winter um, but just having layer options, bring, you know, a, a fleece jacket, a down vest, uh, you know, a, a puffy a synthetic puffy, just having options was nice. Cause it was like, I didn't have to worry about being cold.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: And third and final, you know, essential piece of gear is just a solid ski bag that you can rely on, um, you know, something that's just going to keep your gear safe, that you can throw everything in it. Just good luggage in general is probably what I would say. A bag that you know you're going to be able to leave in the snow for a little bit and your stuff's not going to get wet. Or you can leave out in the snowstorm while you're shoveling the side, the deck of your Airbnb or whatever it is. Just having good, durable luggage Um just adds an element of peace of mind. I couldn't imagine trying to roll around a plastic suitcase with ski gear in it around Niseko or, you know, a, a cheap ski bag you get from Walmart or, you know, your local sporting goods store. Uh, having good luggage, I feel like, is essential to having a stress-free, enjoyable
0: trip. Hey. Um, And then because we're talking about a trip, let's go with top. Three things you wish you would have taken with you? In hindsight,
1: I wish I would have changed up my ski strategy a little bit more. I definitely went for fat, big mountain skis. I wish I would have had uh, a nimble powder ski like a Line Pescado or a uh, Sir Francis Bacon, uh, a K2 Pinnacle 115. Uh, something a little bit shorter. Like I said, I took a Blizzard Rustler 11. It was just a little too long. I found myself not being able to make some of the turns I wanted to just because of the the turning radius, the snow conditions, things like that. Um, if I had to do it over again, I would have changed my ski strategy. I would have brought a little bit narrow waist ski for the non-powder days. The groomers were great, actually. The days we had groomers, I was impressed. Grooming was was super fun groomers. It was, yeah, it was good quality. The, the snow was fun. Um, yeah, I would change up my ski strategy a little bit Two, I would have, uh, if when I go back, I will take a touring setup. Um, you know, I would take the full avalanche, you know, I would have brought a beacon and an airbag, uh, both of which I have. Um, and if my group I was with would have had those as well, it would have just added a little bit more margin of safety. Uh, I don't, I don't think that we were really in areas that I felt in too much of danger. I wouldn't have been there, but I would have just brought some more margin of safety items for side country access.
0: Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree.
1: And, you know, thirdly, as far as as gear goes, I, I would have, you know, I, I feel like every time I go somewhere, I pack less and less. Um, you know, I think just having versatile clothing is like I said earlier, um, I would have done my wardrobe a little bit differently. I think. I think I would have prepared for a little bit warmer, um, or excuse me, I would I would have tried to dress a little bit warmer. I, I was amazed how cold it was. Um, no, I mean I felt felt all in all pretty good. Um, I don't know. I would have. There's not much I would have changed, but like I said, the, the ski makeup. Uh, some avalanche basic avalanche safety items pack probe shovel beacon um and lastly I I don't know I think I, I would have maybe brought some yak tracks you know just cruising around town just something I was amazed how slick the roads were yeah you yeah, know there was point. at least once every day that I took a
0: a skate I never fell thankfully. Yeah, and we saw a lot of we saw quite a few signs that said "Take off your studs," or we even saw some super Gucci eight hundred dollar French shoes, French and with sole,
1: <laughs> yeah, on the bottom and put studs. You know, I think that's a cool idea. You know, and I'm not I'm not big on little. What I found through through going different places, it's just it's amazing what the little things offer. And, you know, you want to do everything in your power to make sure that you have an enjoyable ski trip. And I'm sure there is someone at some time who took a pretty good fall
0: (laughs) walking around the and it ruined their ski trip. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, that's it for this episode of Powder and Loam. Thanks for listening and uh, we'll catch you on the next one.